Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week we talk to the editor of Forbes magazine, the one and only Steve Forbes, about some of the ideas being proposed by Democrats, and he offers some serious advice for President Trump to get the economy moving again. Check it out. And uh, this is our podcast, Kibbe on Liberty. Thanks for joining me. Good to be with you. Thank you. I like that word, liberty, these days. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a word that's not used enough, I suspect. Or honored enough. Honored enough. Something like that. And, and I thought what we might do today is, is tap into your, your knowledge about basic economic principles and how they apply to politics uh, Everyone knows who you are. I'm not going to waste much time on that, but you're the editor-in-chief at Forbes magazine, uh, two-time presidential candidate, uh, really the, the guy that, that, that figured out the flat tax and made it popular um, back when the Republican Party talked about tax reform. That's not really so much a thing anymore. And uh, well, part of the problem is they use the word tax reform, which means nothing to people. You say tax cuts and tax simplicity, people get it. Yeah. GOP's got a communications problem, among yeah. others. Well, well, we'll get into the GOP, but the, there's such a target-rich environment. Um, so few politicians, and, and I would include Republicans and Democrats in this, we don't really talk about policy anymore. We s- seem to spend a lot of time talking about sort of tribalism and us versus them and and why the other guys are so bad, but we don't really talk about substance and policy. So I thought we might take a couple minutes and walk through some of the, the marquee proposals of the candidates running for president. And, and I suspect you have an opinion about some of these things. Oh, I might, I think. <laughs> um, it's, it's a little depressing to, to, to see um, how a lot of the ideas of Bernie Sanders have, have become sort of baseline popular proposals amongst almost everyone running for president as a Democrat today. And right now we're arguing about Elizabeth Warren and, and she has proposed, uh, let's start with Medicare for all. Medicare for all, which I guess is a euphemism for socialized medicine, government owned medicine. It's not just government controlled medicine anymore. Is Medicare for all a good idea? Uh, Medicare for all is another way of saying less health care for the many. And uh, the way other countries control health care costs is by rationing. You just don't get it or you wait for it. In Britain, for example, if you need kidney dialysis, you're above the age of 60 or 65, you will not get it. They will simply let you die. This country has always been based on the principle of turning scarcity into abundance. And when free markets are allowed to operate, that's what happens. Just to take our handhelds virtual supercomputers in your hand. If you'd said 20 years ago grandma could operate a supercomputer, they'd have looked at you and saying, wonder if you've been in the sun too long. Now we take it for granted. Grandma can do it. That's the virtue of allowing creativity. And what we see here in terms of government control of health care, not only does it mean less, not only does it mean politicians deciding who gets it and who doesn't, but also kills innovation. Europe, for example, was once a great font of new medicines, new medical devices. They went more and more for government control, and as a result, they don't aren't creative as they once were. We are. Uh, they've fallen by the wayside. 
So it just doesn't mean uh, waiting for health care. It also means you're not going to get things that we could have had. So the, the you know, price inflation in health care is, is a very real thing. And the cost of insurance since the implementation of Obamacare Yes, we're has, supposed to cut it by several thousand the last yeah. I heard, yes. Well, it, it doubled mine. I don't know about yours, but, but it, I'm... It did it for everybody. I'm paying out and the also, nose for that. And uh, also the co-pays. Yeah. So uh, the deductibles. So you may have the insurance, but you end up paying more than you did before. It's, it's as if every single promise under Obamacare has been broken. Or turned upside down. Yeah. And uh, the thing about health care is to recognize this is not free markets. This is all third party. There's a disconnect between providers and consumers. And it's uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and mostly on the government part, large insurance companies. The patient doesn't count. Now, nobody designed the system, so no point pointing fingers. It, it, it evolved in a very uh, poor way. And uh, you see it with hospitals. They know their revenue depends on how well they negotiate with insurance companies, how well they negotiate with uh, Medicare, Medicaid, not on how they're serving the patient. So it's amazing uh, we do as well as we do with this kind of contorted system. And I like to point out, to show where the patient stands in this pecking order, is that the lousiest motel in America wouldn't dare put you in a room with another guest, a sick guest with a curtain in between, as is routinely done in hospitals. So the key on that is to get real free markets uh, we have a little bit of that in, in food, which is more basic than health care. Uh, we government, I think, is still too much involved in agriculture, but at least the government doesn't try to run the farms. If they did, we'd have no more obesity. We'd all be starving. They tried it in China and Russia that way. That's yeah. some disastrous yeah. results. So uh, let entrepreneurs have a free run in health care, have real markets in health care, and have safety nets. Uh, and, and food, you, if people can't get it, you have everything from food banks to food stamps. Why in the world can't we do the same thing in health care? Unleash that kind of creativity, give more control to the patients, and make sure uh, people, if they uh, come in rough times, they're not going to be thrown on the sidewalk. It's, it seems like Republicans aren't bold enough when they propose health care reforms because they seem caught in this trap where they're defending the status quo and it sounds like they're defending drug companies and they're defending um, insurance companies and of course you know these lobbyists swarm the capital and and game the system and and we we have a, we have a problem just pointing uh, explaining what a actual free market consumer-based system would actually look like because everybody knows that that costs are out out, out through the roof Everybody knows that even now there's, you know, there's a form of rationing. It's, it's difficult sometimes to get the, the services you need for, for lots of patients. Um, but we don't think bold enough. We, I shouldn't say we, I, I feel like legislators and particularly Republicans who aren't proposing single payer happily, like they, they, don't, know, they don't know what the vision is. Is that fair or, or not? Uh, not a, uh, there's not been a good job. Uh, good performance in explaining what free markets would look like in health care. What it would mean is you would control the resources, not some third party. That's the glories about health savings accounts. You control that money in your own account, not a Washington politician. If you get a better price on a drug, that's your money, not an employer's or an insurance company's or the government. We need more of it. There are various ways you can do it. Nationwide shopping for health insurance instead of these restricted markets. We're now in New York. 
you want to buy a policy offered in Pennsylvania, it's illegal. You can buy a car in Pennsylvania, but you can't buy the insurance. Have a nationwide market. Equal tax treatment. If you're an individual, you pay with after-tax dollars. That's not fair. With others, get it with pre-tax dollars. Uh, transparency. Have hospitals and clinics post prices. Have uh, postings of infections received after you're admitted to a hospital. Uh, have the Justice Department go after uh, what they call cons, certificates of need. You know, if Starbucks wants to set up a store against next to Dunkin' Donuts, they just go and do it and see which one does better. They may both make prosper. But in 36 states, you still have to get permission from the government if you want to expand an existing facility, start a new existing facility, which crushes innovation. No surprise. Uh, how, how, how about removing all these restrictions in health savings accounts, both with what you put in and what you can use them for? Uh, right now, you can't use them for over-the-counter medicines. That's crazy. And so uh, removing these obstacles to put you and more in charge, and technology is becoming to our rescue more and more, especially as 5G starts to get rolled out in the next few years. You're going to be able to measure things. You don't have to go to a doctor's office or a hospital. All these kinds of new uh, drugs and medicines and uh, medical devices coming along. So it's ripe for it. And because uh, mo more and more companies are going for high-deductible plans, many of the smart ones combine it with a, a health savings account, and But even with Obamacare, the high deductibles there, you might have uh, subsidies, but you still end up feeling you're getting restricted in terms of your choices and paying more out of pocket. Uh, those are creating a consumer market. And you're going to see the kind of disruptions there that Lyft and Uber have done in taxis, Airbnb and hotel industry and so many other areas. It's starting to come to health care. And we should clear the obstacles so that patients are in charge. When patients are in charge, you don't have that disconnect between doctors and patients. By golly, we're going to get the best of all worlds, more for less. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the barriers to competition you describe are, in fact, barriers that were lobbied for by, by industry groups and, and health care providers and insurance companies and, and drug companies. And I, I think we should be willing to call them out for that that bad behavior. That's not free market. That's cronyism. Um, and how, how, how about uh, taking a look at uh, PBMs, pharmaceutical benefit managers? They're originally created to help uh, consumers and organizations uh, deal with uh, bargain with uh, pharmaceutical companies. Now they're a kingdom unto themselves. If you're a pharma company, pharmaceutical company, and you don't appease the uh, PBMs, your drug does not get to be available. Yeah, yeah. You know, one small like there's there's mostly bad news on healthcare. Even even you know attempts to to re repeal and replace Obamacare fell short. Um, but one bright side that really captures that that positive message about patients and doctors making choices without bureaucrats and regulators between those is the legislation President Trump signed for Right to Try. I, I feel like the story of allowing patients more control over their own lives, particularly patients who have been given a virtual death sentence, wouldn't, wh why would anyone oppose something like that? Because it's all rules-based. And uh, this goes back to the 60s where the idea grew up, if you have enough rules and laws, you don't have to rely on human judgment. They'll cover every contingency, which is preposterous, but that's why you have these 500-page manuals telling teachers how to teach or discipline a student. Yeah. You learn pretty quickly if you're uh, going to be any good in that job. You don't need a book to tell you how to do it. Experience will do it. And so, yes, uh, these are spe steps in the right direction. 
But that's why, again, we got to get the do all we can to get this consumer market going. Yeah. And these things will happen on their own, like electronic records. Every, every drugstore, every uh, laundromat, every gas station, electronic records 20 years ago. Why didn't happen healthcare? Because there was no competitive advantage in doing so. Now the government's trying to say, do it from the top. Here's what you must do. Yeah. Whereas in a free market, you'd have all different kinds of electronic record systems for all different kinds of specialties. It would have happened just by people doing it on their own. So let's go back to Elizabeth Warren and her Medicare for All. And she has... Um, and she- by the way, the nasty little secret is these people who propose these things always have their own special health care benefits. Yeah, yeah the, yes. the Congress does, is not going to, to suffer under Medicare for all. No, sir. Um, the, but she says this is a good deal. It only costs $20.5 trillion, according to her. Um, even Bernie Sanders has thrown out a much bigger number with that. And, and objective third parties have said it's, it's Thirty trillion. It, it might be forty trillion. It might might be even more. I suspect they're all underestimating the total cost of this because, uh, as Margaret Thatcher once said, the you know the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. Um, how much does this cost? Uh, and like, how would well, they is, how would they ever is, raise is, that money? Well, this is where you have to be a little careful. Don't lead with the fact that it's going to cost a lot of money. Because uh, what you lead with, it's going to mean less health care for you. Less, uh, you're not being able to decide what you might need for your child or your loved one. Yeah. Taking away, we already restricted enough, but this way bureaucrats are making those decisions. You should be able to make those decisions. You should have providers trying to find ways to make your life easier, make it more convenient to get these uh, medicines and medical devices. And uh, if people need help, there are very tried and true ways to make sure you're not left behind in terms of uh, needed care. That's, again, the virtue of free markets will turn scarcity into abundance. And uh, that's the way you attack it. In terms of the numbers, they're just so gargantuan. Nobody can get their heads around them. And uh, uh, what she proposes how to, quote, pay for it uh, after she destroys the system and makes it totally chaotic is, uh, is uh, by destroying the economy. Uh, the economy moves forward. Economy is people, and people move forward when you have investment, people starting businesses, expanding businesses, replacing obsolete equipment and the like, coming up with new products and services. That takes savings, and she would destroy savings, and so we'd have stagnation, and we've seen in other countries where that leads. Why do we want to do that here? Why does she ignore experience? So uh, one can make a crack about her ethnicity in terms of her uh, calculations and saying, oh, you won't pay any more. It'll be all free and glorious. Yes, right. Yeah. I Not. mean, she, she, she's only going to tax the wealthy. I mean, who, who's against that? Well, she uh, tries to play the envy card. Oh, all your, all your woes are those evil people like the head of Morgan Stanley, the head of J.P. Morgan, uh, these hedge funds, blah, 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 blah. And uh, so you pick out convenient scapegoats and say, by golly, if we get rid of them, if we crush them, uh, uh, all would be well. And isn't it, aren't they so selfish for not uh, giving more to, your, to her favorite uh, causes and supporting her? And uh, as Lincoln said, you don't uh, help people move up by uh, crushing the rich. You don't make people richer by crushing the rich. You make it possible for people without the means 
who are starting out the chance to rise up, as he put it, improve your lot in life. And that's what, uh, so she's playing the demagogue card. And so uh, you want to go to Venezuela, you want to go to Cuba, North Korea, and other paradises. And even the exalted systems overseas, there's some pretty good systems, but you don't have the innovation, and you do wait. The, to back to your point about tax reform, I mean, the, the Democrats' envy card is always, we're going to tax those rich guys, we're not going to tax you. You know, in practice, it's the, the middle. And this is where the Republicans have got to get their act together. Yeah. She, they talk about, how do you pay for the free stuff? Yeah. Nothing is free. Well, look at Europe. In this country, most states, some exceptions, have sales taxes, 5 6 7%. Some crazy place like Chicago is 10%. In Europe, they have a super sales tax called a value-added tax, 20 to 25%. So you buy something for $100, just add $25 to it to pay for your free stuff. Payroll taxes, what we call FICA, 15.3% uh, in this country. Just keep 15% in mind. comes off the top. In Europe, 35 to 50%. Your income tax rates are higher. That's how you get your free stuff. Yeah. The... The counter-argument that, that you made so well when you ran for president is that um, a very complex tax code that attempts to punish wealth creation, it attempts to sort of separate us based on income or, or industry or however they demonize that, it's ultimately not fair to those of us who don't have an army of lobbyists and lawyers to game the system uh, to rig it, and, and, and I feel like we should steal the fairness argument back from Democrats because yep. treating everybody the same used to be what meant fair. Yes, and uh, half the lobbying in Washington revolves around this uh, monstrosity. So let's just go through the words, my favorite thing. Constitution, amendments, 7,200 words. Bible, took centuries to put together, 773,000 words. And the Federal Income Tax Code and all the attendant rules and regulations, not just the code itself, that's just the start. You have different rulings, interpretations from Treasury and everything else. Ten million words and rising, and nobody knows what's in it. It's a travesty. Several years ago, a magazine did a survey. They took a hypothetical family's finances, numbers, gave them to 46 different tax preparers, people considered experts in the field. And you know what they got back? 46 different tax returns, 46 different estimates of what that family owed, all different, thousands of dollars of difference. This from people who make their living at the thing. So it brings out the worst in us, and you have to look at opportunity costs. This is something very important because we tend to get caught up in economics and sound like we're uh, nerdy bookkeepers. Uh, what, 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 what is happening here, the IRS tells us we spend six billion hours a year filling out tax forms. Experts tell us we spend two to four hundred billion dollars a year complying with this incomprehensible corrupt monstrosity. Go back 20 years. Think of literally tens of billions of hours, hundreds of billions of hours, literally trillions of dollars, all for this stupid code. Now imagine if all those resources had gone instead to new products, new services, new medical devices, new cures for diseases, how much better off we'd be, that opportunity cost, all that wasted brain power. We do it to ourselves, so let's liberate ourselves and have those, that time, that brain power, those resources go for something that benefits all of us. So based on those principles, how do you rank the um, tax cuts that Republicans passed and President Trump 
signed into law, I guess, two years ago now. Yeah, in December of 2017. A nice step in the right direction. They could have done, even in their constricted way, much more. One of the amazing things about uh, Republicans is they worship this thing called the Congressional Budget Office, which purports to tell us what the impact of tax changes, spending changes will have for the next 10 years. If they knew what was going to happen in the next 10 days, they wouldn't be working at the CBO. They would be in the stock market, the commodities market, buying lottery tickets. Yeah. They don't know. But nonetheless, the Republicans take it very seriously. And when you program these uh, uh, models to assume that tax cuts don't do very much, then the tax cuts don't do very much. And so it's biased, the old Geigo thing, garbage in, garbage out. But the Republicans took it very seriously instead of, all right, those models are wrong, rewrite them or throw them out and just do it. And if they did, we'd have an even more prosperous economy today. So uh, Elizabeth Warren has a wealth tax, and she appears to have stolen this idea. A wealth-destroying tax. Well, an economy-destroying tax for sure. Yep. Funny thing about wealthy people is that they're mobile, and they they have ways to, to get around this, including just leaving. Well, they have this sort of cartoon fantasy, these uh, Elizabeth Warrens of the world, that people's wealth is like that old Disney character Scrooge McDuck sitting in his money bins, uh, swimming in all his coins and gold jewelry and bills and all that kind of thing. Their wealth is not liquid. It is not cash. Most of it's in the form of assets. When you tax assets, you reduce the value of it. So you slam Bezos and Amazon. Suddenly he goes from $120 billion to $60 billion. Poof! Just disappears. It's not physical. Yeah. You don't understand that. So by taxing assets, you destroy the value of assets. And so you end up with less, less savings. People use the word capital. I use the word capital. That's another word for savings whether it's you deferring, you're not spending all your income, companies making a profit, it's savings to finance existing businesses, new businesses, uh, coming up with new ways. Most new things don't work, so you have to finance those in the, in the marketplace. So it enables us to find out what works and give us a higher standard of living. And again, we all benefit from it. So in the name of helping us, she's going to destroy us. And the only people who will be helped are those who are commissars, around her, making those decisions. And they always seem to live very well helping we the people. Yes, I've noticed that Nicolas Maduro is gaining weight as his country starves. You would not use him in a Weight Watchers ad. No, you would not at all. Um, but, of course, Elizabeth Warren is, is moderate compared to some of her, her uh, colleagues on the presidential stage. And I think she stole a lot of these ideas from Bernie Sanders, who is a, actually a there self— There are no copyrights in politics. <laughs> Well, there's there's no property rights in socialism either, I guess. And <laughs> so Bernie uh, Bernie came out with something. It, it sounds great, economic bill of rights, and and of course his uh, tax the rich scheme is in there. He wants to tax Wall Street. He wants to tax um, capital in particular, um, which which seems somewhat ironic given that he points to the Scandinavian countries as what he means. You know, when people accuse him of being a socialist, he's like, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a democratic socialist and I'm not talking about the USSR. I'm talking about Norway. Um, and if you look at countries like Norway, other Scandinavian countries that, that 
Bernie celebrates, um, they actually treat capital pretty well. Uh, you take uh, the two biggies, Denmark and uh, Sweden, which don't have the oil that uh, gives a cushion to uh, Norway and places like Kuwait. And uh, they initially created their wealth relative to other countries with free market economics, low taxes, sensible regulation. And as they got more prosperous, they decided, hey, let's uh, do all these freebies and more benefits and why, why bother to work? And they got in serious economic trouble. And so they scaled back the very kinds of behaviors that Bernie Sanders wants to bring here to the United States. Sweden, for example, does not have a death tax. Sweden allows you school choice. Is that what Bernie Sanders is proposing? If so, I haven't heard it yet. Yeah. <coughs> if so, so they, if so, so I'd have, sign up. So they have their fantasy lands yeah. that don't exist. Yeah. The uh, the other thing that he does, and he, of course, has also embraced Medicare for All, um, government ownership of the provision of medicine, is is how I like to describe it. And and he says his, by the way, costs a lot more than, than Elizabeth Warren's. But he takes it a step further, and this is the first time I think I've seen this proposal. He wants to forgive medical debt, debt and along with uh, education debt. And it, I think about the, you've seen this, this data, you look at industries in the United States where price inflation is rampant, and, and two industries stick out, healthcare, and you, you mentioned perhaps the reason why, even before Obamacare, um, the majority of a dollar spent on health care would come through Medicaid and Medicare and other government providers of Or of third health. parties, even yeah. if they're in, 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 a, in a free enterprise system. It's not the traditional provider-consumer model. So, in, 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 and maybe I think this is counterintuitive to people that don't think like economists, but the, the more that the government throws money at something like health care, without competition, without uh, accountability of all these third parties, decision makers, um, you get less and less, but you can spend seemingly an infinite amount on really bad health care. And you see it in higher education, the other area where costs are going up, sticker prices going up four times the rate of inflation, and all with good intentions. Yeah. Decades ago, hey, let's help kids by encouraging student loans. We'll guarantee them guarantee the banks, uh, give them grants like Pell Grants, will help them out pay these tuition costs. <clears throat> and unlike the traditional scholarship that uh, colleges and universities had, where you were expected to work and, uh, and get uh, uh, help from others, uh, this became a way for universities and colleges to get money and jack up costs and build more facilities. You look at the rise, and this also is government regulation. Uh, you have a huge administrative staffs, huge bureaucracies. You look at the growth of bureaucracies and mandates versus professors actually doing real research or teaching in the classroom. Boy, the lines diverged a long, long time ago. So you have all this bloat. If you want to see where decent management, where there's real accountability can work, just look at Purdue University. Uh, seven years ago, a new president came in, former governor, former budget officer from Washington, Mitch Daniels, and they came to him and said, we've got to raise tuition as we always do every year, 3 to 4%. He said, well, I'm new here. Uh, we're going to post freeze it a year. I just want to get my arms around this job before doing something like that. And the admissions office said, if you do that, if our price is seen as lower than other universities, people are going to think we have an inferior product. It'll hurt admissions. 
Now they come to him and say, don't raise the, the tuition. So for seven years he froze tuition, not for one year, but for seven years in a row. Cut deals with places like Amazon to make textbooks cheaper and the like, efficiencies in food services. And today, a kid going to Purdue will spend less overall than a kid going to Purdue seven years ago. Wow. They've hired more professors, so it's not skimping on educational opportunities. So it goes to show where there's accountability and you have the traditional uh, markets, consumerism working, by golly, you will get more for less. And that should be the model for higher education. But right now with these subsidies, they don't care if you take six years. They don't much care if you don't graduate and, and uh, get stuck with debt. So college, which was once seen as a road to mobility, really helping you advance your career, realizing the American dream, comes a form of servitude because you end up with uh, this debt that you spend years yeah. trying to pay off, and a lot of them are not going to be able to pay it off. So before even talking about what you do about existing debt and uh, taking account of people who did pay their debts, you got to fix the problem. Otherwise, yeah. it's just going to come back again. So you, you, you see like uh, how young people who borrowed a lot of money to get a college degree and discovered in the process that it wasn't worth nearly as much as they thought it would, so they're, they're, they're burdened with all of this debt. And let's say they came to age around 2008, and they saw Washington, D.C. bail out Wall Street, and yet they have all of this debt. We well, see Washington said to them, we're helping you. We're making it easier for you to go to college, and you don't have to worry about the cost. Yeah. Well, it, uh, it was uh, false advertising. And so, again, watch what happens when they say, we're here to help you out. Uh, those banks that got bailed out, uh, they're, they're, uh, they, they, they suffered in the sense that, uh, yeah, they, uh, they may have gotten a bailout. Most of them, by the way, like uh, Morgan and some others, VBT, did not want a bailout. They were fine. They yeah. did not want to have to put money up and suffer for the sins of their brethren. So, uh, but, in, but, in, but even there, they, they, their opportunities were restricted. They're told not to lend, which hurt the economy. So all of these things are bad, bad all around. But in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, students, what you're going to see, and again, high tech is going to help if we give it a real push, is you can get, do your education on your own. You can do it online. Starbucks helps their baristas get an education, not through the traditional scholarship, the head of the former head of the company, creator of it, a fellow named Schultz, uh, just Howard Schultz said, uh, that's not going to work. We can't give baristas $20,000 to you know, go to college. So they came up with an innovative online education courses with the uh, Arizona State University, worked it out with them, a very, very creative way to do it so you can get that higher education, still earn money, and not end up with uh, crushing debt. And uh, what you're going to see more of is what business schools discovered years ago is you can get uh, these schools like Wharton and Harvard and Northwestern and others, very nice degree, a certificate in a certain area uh, with the business school imprimatur on it. But you uh, take a course, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 18 weeks, but you may only spend one or two weeks on campus. The rest is online. And so you're going to see more and more of that. Uh, show us you're proficient in an area. If you want humanities, plenty of opportunity to go online to do it. So the traditional way of education is going to profoundly change. There's more than, you use the cliche, there's more than one way to skin this cat. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the old, the old idea of, of bricks-and-mortar education, particularly with the, the insane inflation that we have 
in all of this, it, it seems like it's, it's ripe for disruption. And we, we talk a lot about that on the show, that, that technology and the ability to Google stuff is, is a radically disruptive. Well, I'm, I'm old enough to remember a thing called card catalogs in libraries. <laughs> We'd laboriously have to go through, and now you just go online, boom, boom, boom. You know. Finding ideas was, was an arduous process back then. You had to be super motivated in order to do that. And by the way, in terms of reform, why, why does it take four years to get through uh, undergraduate? Maybe you should be able to easily do it in three years. Yeah. You won't have the long summer vacation, but take five weeks off and do it in three years. Your parents will be happy. Uh, you'll be uh, productive sooner or at least uh, have more time to figure out what you're going to do with your life. Yeah. And uh, law school, most will tell you, uh, whispers, you could do that in two years. And how about letting students once again do what they used to do? If you want, apprentice in a law office and yeah. still be allowed to take the bar. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure the legal guild would allow for that. It's a, it's a cartel like like all of these things. Yes. Which um, gets to the whole subject of licensing, perhaps another subject for yeah. another time of restricting. Uh, well, it should be. It should be something that, that young people care about. You're, you're talking about a lot of, of freedoms that, that would particularly affect uh, millennials and Generation Z and, and yet back to this problem. Like there, there's every year there's a new scare poll that shows that more and more young people are embracing socialism and they embrace Bernie's philosophy and, and they embrace Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. Um, how, do we, how do we turn the ship there? Well, Part of the problem is is the way who's been teaching in the schools. They're not taught about what happened with the great society, 60s, especially the aftermath in the 70s. They're not taught about uh, what's happened in these other countries, uh, the ugly results of uh, the, the, these methods and these ideologies. So if you're not taught in you know, socialism, well, okay, that sounds okay, better than uh, having 100000 50000 $20,000 of student debt. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. You don't know. So uh, we have to do the counter ideas. And one of the things we have to learn is it's not just winning elections, important though that is. We've got to learn to fight in the culture, Yeah. fight in the schools, fight the battle of ideas, and make the case that what we're advocating gives you more freedom, more choice, more opportunity in life than what the others are offering. I actually think, um, and, and you're, you're- preaching to my choir here because I think I think the only way to connect with young people is upstream of politics because the the divisiveness of, of Republicans versus Democrats conservatives versus progressives um, this tribalism I, I I'm not sure that it's advantageous for us when we're trying to reach young people I mean President Trump has said this will never be a socialist country and I'm reminded of uh, uh, I'll pick on President Trump here for a second because I'm reminded of of Frederick Hayek um, warning us that that many of the critics of socialism didn't exactly understand what it was that they were criticizing. And and if so, if running against socialism and running against Bernie Sanders just becomes a talking point, I think you sort of lose that that intellectual debate. And we've been picking on Democrats a lot, but I feel like there's some some things that we should hold Republicans accountable for as well when it comes to expanding the size of government, the, the debt and spending, and, and even failing to, to, to make that strong argument for, for choice and health care as opposed to just criticizing Obamacare as socialist medicine. 
Well, that's, uh, this is where the politics is important because if we don't fight there, then bad things will happen. And one of the things that's happened over the last hundred years is the growth of the administrative state, whatever you want to call it. And these agencies, you know, Congress will pass 120, 140 laws a year. These agencies will pass rules and regs that have the force of federal law three or four or 5,000 times a year and uh, crushing the economy. It's just so mind-boggling. Some estimate, estimate that it's 150 million words. And uh, so that's also where we, where we have to fight and make sure. I mean, we've seen already the benefits just of a little bit of deregulation, slowing this train down, and the benefits it has, especially for small businesses. And uh, one of the things, and the way we fight those battles is not try to pick each little fight on each little regulation, but go through uh, what a fellow named Philip Howard, who's probably a little left of center but hates what's happened to the law, principles-based regulation. Uh, Australia, uh, several, a number of years ago, had hundreds of pages of regs on how you run a nursing home. They came up with a radical idea, throw those regs out. They came up with a few pages of 31 principles, like treat the patient nicely, keep the place clean, basic stuff like that and said, you figure out how to do it, and if you don't, you'll be punished for it. You'll be held accountable. The results were amazing. The nursing homes came better. Patients were treated better. Principle-based, that's how we fight it. Instead of trying to fight these battles, which are like trench warfare, you gain ground, but it's a horrific uh, cost, and then they counterattack. The empire always strikes back. So principles-based. One thing uh, the Trump administration started is uh, another idea. Why is everything concentrated in Washington? Why not have uh, the agencies all around the country? Uh, the FDA, why not in Boston, where there's a great scientific community? Live among real people instead of this bubble in Washington, which makes lobbying harder, too, if it's spread around the 50s glorious states. Uh, not so easy to go make a few calls and uh, fix things. And uh, so those kinds of uh, ideas, which people say, yeah, it should be spread around the country. And one of the things Republicans keep making the mistake of is they always come across, and you alluded to it earlier, uh, Matt, is taking something away, even if it doesn't affect you directly. They, if they can do it to him or her, maybe they can do it to me, sort of this negative thing. So on Medicare for All, don't lead with the cost. That just goes over people's heads. Sounds like you're more worried about money than caring for grandma. Right. Start with yeah. less health care. They're going to take away your choices. They're going to make choices as to who gets the, uh, the, the medicines and who doesn't. I don't want that. Yeah. Bad enough as it is. <laughs> so one of the, like, if, if you ask a free marketeer to, to grade the Trump administration, um, they, will, they will point to the Supreme Court. They will point to the tax bill. They will point to the the fair, what looks to be a fairly aggressive administrative attempt to reduce uh, the cost and the number of regulations, um, and and I think you and I would agree that that an incumbent president will be judged based on the economy, and and all this other stuff perhaps doesn't matter nearly as much as we think it does. It's really about whether or not people feel. Like they're they're earning more, that they have more opportunity. Key word is uh, not only just earning more, but the uh, chance to get ahead. Yeah, that there's a real optimistic future, which yeah. uh, Reagan conveyed. And and you know, from my perspective, I you you would have opinions about this and and correct me, but but I feel like the economy is not as strong as it should be. 
it's it's clearly stronger than than it performed well, under it the was, Obama administration. It was significantly stronger in 27, 2018. Yeah. Then we got involved in these trade disputes, and that has hurt. It's hurt manufacturing. It's hurt investment because if you don't know what the rules of the road are, you're not going to invest as aggressively as you would have otherwise. And the thing to keep in mind is tariff is another word for sales tax. So when you hear 25% tariff on autos, think 25% sales tax. And it, it hurts us. Don't get the idea, that, oh, somebody else is going to pay for it. No, we all pay for it. Consumers yeah. pay for it. Businesses pay for it. That gets to uh, uh, trade abuses. Well, there are mechanisms in place to deal with trade abuses. We've never really enforced them consistently. And if we need to reform the mechanisms to do it, as we did in the 1990s, perhaps 20-some-odd years later, it's time to uh, re reboot it for the uh, re reform it, for change it for the uh, digital age, then you do it. And uh, we should, uh, in the case of China, uh, we should unite with our allies and say this kind of behavior is not acceptable. And uh, by golly, that would have an impact. So it's, it's, it's the, if you're worried about abuses, that's one thing. But tariffs are not the way to treat abuses. And as for trade deficits, a little higher than they were a year and a half ago, if you take that thing seriously, which ignores capital flows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that come to the United so it's an accounting artifact but it really is um, I, I think the I think these trade wars are are very much the Trump administration's Achilles heel when it comes to uh, what's going to happen in 2020 but it's 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 difficult to argue um, with protectionists sometimes because it's not an economic argument it's really an emotional argument that they make um, but I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't see any. I don't see any backing down of the, well, of the administration where, again, on this. You have to prepare for the long fight. Uh, studies are starting to show even the steel industry ended up not being helped yeah. very much at all by these uh, sales taxes, and certainly hurt uh, those who use steel. And so uh, the Bush administration, uh, Bush forty three, uh, tried uh, some protectionism in the early early days on steel. They saved some jobs there, at least short term, but cost uh, five to ten times as many jobs as those who use the steel. Yeah, it was so, a disaster. Uh, uh, 240 years after Adam Smith, <clears throat> 180 years after Britain repealed the Corn Laws, made themselves a free, free trade nation, 90 years after Smoot-Hawley, disastrous tariffs that started a global trade war and helped bring on the Great Depression, here we are, still fighting those battles. It, uh, and, and by the way, the same way that Smoot-Hawley crushed the agricultural sector and, and triggered uh, the Great Depression, that's, that's part of what's happening now, is our farmers are getting hit pretty hard. Yeah. Now, they're patriotic, and they say, well, if it's necessary to make America well, we'll go through it short term. But they're going to start to ask, where does this end? And when uh, the president said, and I'm being blunt here, when he said trade wars are easy to win, wars of any kind are not easy to win. They always take courses you don't anticipate. Yeah. And we're seeing that play out here, which is why I'm now optimistic that seeing how difficult it is, I think we will get a deal with China, and uh, so we can start to move forward. I think the Democrats will want to show they can get something done other than impeachment uh, stuff. In Washington, so they will pass uh, the new NAFTA, USMCA, uh, so we know what the rules are with Canada and uh, Mexico. 
And so, and then uh, the key other thing, big thing to watch for is Europe. We've got actions potentially against their auto industry and other industries uh, under what they call Section 232. Anyway, t uh, t up to 25% sales taxes on uh, autos and auto imports, given the fact these sophisticated supply chains around the world where uh, things can cross the border several times before they go in the final product, you, you, you put that kind of a sales tax on, it's gonna, Europe's going to go into recession. They're already kind of wobbly right now. We'll go into a recession. Got to avoid that stuff. And if we avoid it, if you could wave the magic wand and have all these disputes go away, you'd see the market immediately go up 5,000 points on the Dow, and you'd see the economy go from 2% to 3% growth pretty quickly. So I completely agree with your argument and your your sort of macroeconomic analysis of, of the downside of trade wars, but it didn't get really personal to me until they slapped huge tariffs on Scotch whiskey, French wine, and cheese. Then, then I decided to, to really get upset about this. Well, and uh, you have probably felt it in other ways in terms of what you didn't get because yeah. of higher costs, uh, what you missed in terms of uh, greater economic opportunities because of these uh, sales taxes and barriers. So, yes, uh, it can be direct and indirect, but we all pay for it. So let's let's pivot and, and wrap up. I want to I want to ask you. Um, you are a publisher, and you were talking about technology earlier. And and uh, no industry has been as disrupted as as publishing. Tell me tell me what the future is for for your industry because getting getting knowledge to people and getting these ideas and and you write about this every day, uh, making these basic economic arguments that we've talked about. Um, how do, you, how do you get to this place where everything is disrupted and disintermediated? And, and I'm sure you lie awake at nights asking yourself this question. Well, Joseph, Joseph Schumpeter, the famous Austrian economist, came up with the famous phrase, creative destruction. The creative part is very nice. Yeah. The destruction part, <laughs> uh, less so. It smarts Not a so little nice. bit, yeah. And uh, in our industry, the print industry, uh, everything uh, sometimes you felt you'd learn has gone out the window. And so you have to remember what Peter Drucker, the late great management guru, once said. He said, every organization should remind itself, what is your purpose? What is it you're trying to achieve? What is it you're trying to do? And if you do that, then you become a little less uh, discombobulated when the means to achieve it change. But where you talk about uh, laying awake at night, and we live in an era where you can eat well or sleep well, but not both. Eating part I have no problem with. The other part, uh, <laughs> not, not so simple but is that you don't know what will work in the future. There's no playbook, and you're inventing things as you go along, and it's uh, quite, quite, quite uh, hair-raising, and if, assuming you have hair. And uh, the, the, the challenge is, though, come up with new ways of doing things. One of the things we do now, we have in terms that we still do, we still print magazines, but online now we have over 3,000 contracted contributors. Uh, you're paid in part by the traffic you generate. So we're providing more content for people than ever before, but very different model. And uh, we the, virtually the produce Uber a magazine. The Uber of publishing. Yeah, we, we do a virtual magazine every day now, yeah. over 100,000 submissions a year. And uh, so, yes, uh, you, you cannot stay still. The world is not staying still. 
And this also gets to the importance, you have to remind yourself of the importance of what they call branding. Uh, the, the, the Internet will relentlessly commoditize everything. You have to have something that's truly distinct, where people can go to it and know what to expect and trust, then you have a chance. But uh, so uh, it's nice to say, reinvent yourself. Much harder to do. Yeah. That's what you're paid for. Consumers benefit, but uh, those of us who provide it, you know, it's... (laughs) <laughs> that may be that may be a concept that that few politicians really really realize when they propose all of these schemes, and they can't see the future. That's where socialism fails. Socialism cannot see the future. Planning, you can plan, but the world may change. Now Hayek said uh, one reason socialism fails is nobody in the, these positions has all the knowledge. Even if you had all the knowledge, go back twenty years. Could you have foreseen? handhelds the way they evolved, uh, the rise of things like Facebook or Google, uh, services like that. No, you couldn't have. So uh, you don't know until people do it. And you, if you don't have the environment where they can do it, you'll never know. <laughs> Let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.